This is a picture of my three-year-old son, Truman, reading Frosty the Snowman last week to our one-year-old daughter, Elin. Now, he doesn't actually know how to read, but he's made us read this to him countless times. He knows the whole story by heart, and he can describe each and every page. Honestly, I'm getting a little bored reading the book. Uh, you know, I actually, that's, that's a lie. I'm getting very bored reading the book. But there's something about listening to him tell the story that I find captivating. Uh, I absolutely love it. And the book ends, uh, spoiler alert for a song that was first written in 1950, but with Frosty returning to the children every Christmas, bringing them joy and excitement as, as he arrives. It ends the way that so many stories like this end. You know, it, it doesn't actually use this particular phrase, but the implication is that they all lived happily forever after. And we all love that phrase, don't we? We, we love stories that end with everyone living happily ever after, and yet... Most of us know how rare that ending is in real life. So I want to ask you a question today. What is the Christmas story? What kind of story is the Christmas story? I mean, so many Christmas stories end this way, right? With the characters living happily ever after. But what about the original Christmas story? What about Jesus, Mary, and Joseph? What happened to them? Well, let's look at it this morning. So here's what I'd like you to do. Grab a Bible and a pen or a Bible app, open it up, and go to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. If you don't have either of those, you can actually download the Bible app. We'll put a picture of what the app looks like up for you. Or you can go to my.bible.com and you can type in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Feel free to pause the video, go get what you need, and then come back and join us. The story we picture in our mind, I think, often resembles the manger scene that you'll see in people's yards or on certain town greens. Mary and Joseph looking down beautifully at this serene baby surrounded by angels and shepherds and wise men and those, those perfect little fluffy sheep. Yet the Christmas story told in Scripture by the writer of Matthew is actually much darker, uh, much grittier, and, and far more grounded in reality than that manger scene. And our story today actually starts with the departure of those wise men. Uh, If you're interested, you can read their story in the preceding 12 verses before this section. But but to recap real quickly, they're a group of astrologers that have come from the east to find the newborn king of the Jews, as they put it. And they arrive sometime within the first two years of Jesus' life, and they find Jesus' family living in Bethlehem. After they find Jesus, they bring him expensive gifts. And then they're warned in a dream not to return to the current king, the the ruling authority, a man named Herod. So they leave and they head home by a different route that takes them around Jerusalem and around King Herod's influence. So with that in um, context in mind, let's, let's read. This is what Matthew says. He said, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. All right, that opening there doesn't jive well with our manger scenes, does it? But what it does do is it leads me to, I think, one of the most important things to remember about the Christmas story, and that is simply this. The Christmas story is real. It doesn't start with once upon a time. It isn't described as a fairy tale or an analogy, and it doesn't end with they all lived happily ever after. The story of Christmas is real, and it's messy, and it's gritty, and honestly, it's pretty dark. This section of Matthew could potentially be titled the untidy aftermath of Christmas. And the characters in it, they're not acting out a role. We are not intended to watch them as if this was some sort of moral fable meant to teach us about life and human interaction. 
These are real people struggling with real problems, and the story is being recorded for us by real people, and they respond as you or I would if there was a threat to the lives of our children. Matthew puts it simply this way. He says, That night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night, out of a dream, in a cold sweat, absolutely convinced that you have to do something? Well, that's what happens to Joseph here. But, but luckily, Joseph has experience on his side. This is actually the second dream that he's had from God, and he responds to it immediately. A uh, side note before we move on. We still hear stories of God speaking to people through dreams all the time. Uh, often today, interestingly enough, in the Muslim world. So let's not discount this as Joseph's imagination just because this particular interaction might not have occurred to you or to me. So what Joseph does is what any father would do. He wakes up Mary, they gather up their belongings and their young son, and they skip town in the middle of the night under a cover of darkness. From there, they make the 75-mile journey, again with a very young child, probably on foot or at most with a donkey, to Egypt. Now, this next part I find fascinating because Egypt had actually been a place of refuge for the Jews a variety of times in the past. Uh, If you remember our series from this summer on Joseph and how Egypt became a place of refuge and protection for his whole family during a great famine. Uh, The the infant nation of Israel at that point was kept alive and protected in Egypt uh, from possible destruction. And Mary and Joseph are only around today to make this journey back to Egypt because of that. So if you're curious and you want more info on that story, you could actually go to grace.org sermons and look up the series God With Us. It's a fascinating story and we'll walk you through the whole thing. So Egypt had been a place of refuge for the Jews in the past, and it actually continued to be at this point in history a place of refuge for many Jews right now. In fact, there were colonies of Jews in several major cities at this point in history that may have contained as many as one million Jews at this point. So Mary and Joseph... It's possible they could have even had distant relatives already living there, but whether or not they did, they at least had connections to the community that was living there. Uh, Think about it like like a Jewish refugee coming to the United States today and settling into the Jewish section of New York City or another major city. And lastly, while Egypt was still a Roman province, so under Roman rule, like Judea, where they had fled from, it was outside the jurisdiction of Herod himself. So they go there, They settled probably in a Jewish section of a major Egyptian city with Jesus to wait on God's call to return home. But as they do, the story at home just gets much darker. This is what Matthew says. He said, Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Matthew says that Herod was furious. And everyone in Israel knew that when Herod was furious, people died. Herod's fury always led to death and destruction. This is the same man who had three of his own sons, his own wife, and scores of other people killed just on the mere suspicion of disloyalty or sedition. This is the same man who just a few years later, as he laid on his own deathbed, He was worried that no one in Israel would mourn his death, so he ordered a large number of Jewish leaders gathered together in one building, and then he gave orders to the soldiers to kill them upon his death so that there would be mourning and grief in the nation. And luckily, when he died, they didn't follow through on it. But everyone knew that Herod would not stand for anyone to challenge his authority. And here comes this newborn king of the Jews, 
this challenge to his authority. And here you have Herod, a man who is accustomed to spilling blood to secure his power, so spill blood he did. Herod was a monster. And historians estimate that there were around 1,000 residents living in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, and probably around 20 boys, two years old or younger. So Herod's soldiers enter the town and they kill all of them. Now, if that hits you hard, it hits me incredibly hard. As a father of a three-year-old son, I, I can't even imagine it. But let's remember that the Romans, who ruled the whole world, who Herod was trying to emulate and be like, they would occasionally destroy entire towns, killing every man, woman, and child, killing every animal, just to make an example for the rest of the region of their power. So while this act by Herod is heinous, while it is horrible, while it might shock us, it is not particularly uncommon. I mean, Matthew, the writer, doesn't even treat it as surprising. He was a Jew. He knew the history of the Jewish people. He knew the litany of atrocities that had been committed against them. But while it wasn't surprising, it doesn't make it any less painful for Matthew or for those living through it. This is what Matthew says. He said, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And as he quotes Jeremiah, this is the quote. He says, a cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. So Matthew, quoting from Jeremiah, he's quoting a section of what Jeremiah was writing during an incredibly traumatic time in the life of Israel. A time when a significant portion of the nation was conquered and carried off into exile by Babylon. And Ramah, the town he's talking about, it was the staging point for the deportation of so many Jewish people. And Rachel, the woman he talks about, she was the wife of Jacob. Uh, the man first given the name Israel by God and one of the founding fathers of the nation. So Rachel was kind of like the symbolic mother of the nation. It, it would be like someone today saying that Martha Washington was weeping over her children during a time of national tragedy. What Matthew is saying here is that Israel itself weeps with these mothers. Mothers whose sorrow and grief is so intense that they cannot be comforted. It's a time of great darkness, and suffering. It's interesting that Christmas comes to us at a time of darkness. At least here in the Northern Hemisphere, where the Christ Christmas traditions were formed and, and put together. We celebrate it almost immediately after the darkest day of the year. And I think it's for two reasons. Number one, it's a, it's a recognition of that darkness. This is a real story, and the Christian faith does not shy away from the reality of life. But more than that, it is a fierce declaration of the power of light and the power of God over that same darkness. This quote here from Jeremiah, it's beautiful because it's about more than just suffering and grief. It is about comfort and joy. It is about hope and a future. Uh, listen to what God continues to say right after that quote above. He says this, he says, This is now what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer, for I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. I love that line. Your children will come again to their own land. And that's what happens in this story as well, to Mary, Joseph, and, and Jesus. They return from exile. Continue with me in Matthew's account. It said, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel. 
because those that were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophet had said. He will be called a Nazarene. The story of Christmas is a story that is steeped in pain, in death, in suffering, and in darkness. N.T. Wright, one of the world's premier New Testament scholars, puts it this way. He said, before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. It's not quite the manger scene on our lawns, is it? The thing about the Christmas story is it is a true story, a gritty and a real story. It is an unsentimental and a realistic story that when removed from generations and centuries of tradition and understood on its own merits, it connects with us because of its realism. And what's beautiful about that is that the story, because of its realism, is about a God who connects with us also because of his realism, his experience suffering the pain and the indignities of life just like us. Uh, Back to N.T. Wright talking about Jesus. This is what he says. He says, no point in arriving in comfort when the world is in misery. No point in having an easy life when the world is suffering violence and injustice. If he is to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where the pain is. I love that line. Jesus is the Emmanuel. And the story of Christmas brings us comfort and joy because of the one whom the story is about joins us where the pain is. Jesus is the God with us. And being with us, joining us in the pain, joining us in our life, he offers us a gift unlike any other. If you came to Christmas this year hoping for rescue from your suffering, you won't find it. It, At least not in the way that you might have been looking for. Uh, There's no promise from Jesus to miraculously pull you up out of whatever situation you're facing. Sometimes that does happen. I mean, there, there are countless stories of God healing people from sickness or, or addiction or rescuing people or providing for them in miraculous ways. But there are also countless stories of people praying with great faith and still dying or struggling with addiction or going without. Jesus doesn't promise anywhere in scriptures to shield us from trouble or suffering. Instead, what we find is a God who joins us in the suffering. We find the Emmanuel, the God with us, the God who has been where we are and promises to be with us where we are right now. Tim Keller, who's a pastor out of New York, uh, put it this way, which I love. He said, if God has really been born in a manger, then we have something no other religion even claims to have. It's a God who understands you from the inside of your experience. There's no other religion that says that God has suffered, that God had to be courageous, that he knows what it's like to be abandoned by friends, to be crushed by injustice, to be tortured and die. Christmas shows that he knows what you are going through. When you talk to him, he understands. The God who understands. I love that line. You know, I I mentioned that my two kids are one in three. And like most parents, they have radically altered the way I see the world. You know, just for example, I, f- I find myself not just crying at times, but weeping at moments in movies that I've seen before, but I don't even remember noticing before I had kids. You know, through them, I'm constantly reminded of my own mortality and my own powerlessness in the face of so much suffering, danger, and risk. So every night before I go to bed, I 
pray over the two of them. And Truman, because he is older and he sleeps better and he's not in a crib, uh, I often will actually take my forehead and I'll put my forehead down on his little forehead and I'll pray over him in that posture while he sleeps. And for years I've, I've prayed the same prayer and, and it, it went like this. It went, God, please protect him. God, please provide for him. God, please keep him safe, keep him from harm. But around the time my daughter was born, I, I found myself realizing that all that prayer, although those prayers are fine and normal for any parent to ask, they're really missing the point. Because God is a father. God is a parent. And if God is a father and a parent, then he has the heart of a father and he understands my heart as a father. Jesus is the Emmanuel, the, the God who is with me. So he knows the deep longings and fears I have for the future of my children. And God also knows what it is to suffer as his children suffer. So I've actually changed my prayers. What I do now is I, I primarily just thank God for my children and I ask God to draw them to him. And honestly, it scares me a little bit because I feel like I am I'm holding them with more open hands. But I keep reminding myself that they are his first, that they are a gift to me from him, that life is short, but God's presence in our lives is forever. And that what waits all of us, myself, you, our children in eternity, makes our present suffering pale in comparison. I, I love the way the apostle Paul reflected on this reality. This is what he said. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, this doesn't mean that the pain and the suffering aren't real. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually lists out in Scripture how many ways he had suffered. You know, our lives are still filled with so much suffering and uncertainty. The, the, the world and the Christmas story itself, it didn't tidy itself up after Christmas. But what we found as we read through the story is that we weren't alone in that mess. Jesus entered into it with us. And he offered us comfort and joy and a relationship back to God. Uh, that presence that he offers us, as Pastor Leah reminded us a couple of weeks ago, and that path back to a relationship with God, they are an unparalleled gift that we are all offered right now at Christmas and, and through the rest of the year. But, but we're reminded of it in this moment as we read through this story. That said, this gift, it's a gift that does require a little something of us. A gift that requires a swallowing of our pride, a setting aside of our self-reliance, a gift that requires that you and I admit our own weakness and our inability to rescue ourselves. Because in the untidy aftermath of Christmas, we receive the gift of the one who has been there before and who promises to be there with us now if we're willing to receive it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to close with the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel just simply means the God with us. Jesus is the God with us, the God who suffered the God who has struggled, the God who has been where you are now, and the God who promises to be with you in everything you experience. And it is this God, this man, Jesus, who changed the world. And if you'll let him, he will change your life. The world isn't set to right. We all know that. My own life isn't set to right. But God has promised that that would come, that it is just not here yet. So what we're going to do today is we're going to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is traditionally an Advent song. But as we sing it today, we're going to sing it with both purposes in mind. As a reminder of what God has done and as a longing for what God is still to do someday.